part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open up your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. We've been going verse by verse through Malachi. Last week we stopped with Malachi 3.6 and it's such an important foundational part of the passage that we looked at last week. And it's uh, an important part of what is really a foundation for us to leap from this week. Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, if you weren't here last week, let me put in context of what we studied last week. He says, I don't change because one of the accusations that the people of God had against God is that somehow he had changed. That they knew things were different and they said, God, you're just, we don't see justice. We don't see this. We don't see that. And they put all the blame on God and they kind of were accusatory to him changing. And so he comes back and he says, look, I want you to know I haven't changed. You've changed, but but I haven't changed. And then he comes back and after he had talked about going through that, he used the refining fire. He said, I want you to know that it's because of who I am, because of my love for you, that you're not consumed. Last week we talked about what is this refining fire that God talked about. And and folks, that refining fire is really God's grace in our lives. That when we are rebellious, when we kind of get distant from God, that sometimes he does allow, sometimes I would even say that he would cause, different things to happen in our lives. Certainly he gives allowance to those things. And sometimes we fall down and we skin our knees and we bump our elbows. And sometimes it's even a little bit more, you know, dire than that. And that even these are the acts of grace to a God who loves us so much. Because is there anything more pitiful than in our distant rebellion, in our sinful life, that we would be off here? Is there anything worse that we would just remain in that state? Sometimes when we kind of crash and burn, as we would say, we come to that lowest part, we hit rock bottom, we all wonder, where are you, God? And, And we have to understand that sometimes God has actually allowed that so that we do look up and say, God, where are you? That's what he means here when he says in verse 6, I do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This was a refining fire, not a consuming fire. Could could God consume you with the fires of adversity, uh, just with his wrath upon you? Could God do that? Yeah, easily. Would God be justified in doing that? Yeah. Well, we really couldn't, I mean, we can say this is uncomfortable, this doesn't, we don't like this, but we could never accuse God of being unfair or unjustified if he had a consuming fire in us. And that's not what he says here. He says, no, I I love you and I'll allow you at times to go through a refining fire, but it's not a consuming fire. I hope that you see that this is the consistent message that we see in Malachi. It's a tough book. It's a hard book. Because in it, we see God bringing out and putting focus on the rebellion of the people, the sins of the people. And we don't like that. I think if there's one thing that would cause our pride to stir up faster than anything else is when we get accused of something. You know, and even if we know that they're right, how many of us really like to hear the truth about ourselves, especially if we have done wrong? In marriage, this is one of the continual battles that we have that sometimes we lack the full honesty, even in that intimacy of marriage, because we're going, you know, I don't know. If I bring it up, he may not react in a healthy way. She may not react 
in an honorable or holy way. How many of y'all are just great at taking constructive criticism? Yeah. Almost, even when it is meant to be constructive criticism, does it feel like destructive criticism? You know why? Because we, we have this pride. We don't like being wrong. And so when God begins to call out the people of Israel, his people that he chose, he said, you've left me. And yet every time he brings accusation, he gives evidence, and yet he finds a rebellious heart. He calls them to change. He, he calls them to, to turn away, and he calls them to return to him. But in every single case, please don't miss this. If you miss this, you miss the whole point of the whole sermon. Every time that God calls for us to return, he opens the door and he invites us back. He's always the instigator. He's always the motivator. Remember what he said in the very beginning, Malachi chapter 1 verse 2? I have loved you, which meant in in the Hebrew structure, I have loved you, I do love you, I will love you. God always preceding any of these accusations, any of these indictments, and they're true accusations. They're not just his feelings. They truly were in sin, and yet every time that he brings this to them, he offers them a way back. God's always making the first move of restoration. One of the saddest counseling situations that I ever find myself in, and it comes up more often than I would ever want it, is when you have, let's say, a husband and wife, and, and we find that they're just a, a warring party. They're just, they're not together. And there's been, uh, I know it's a two-way street, but a lot of times there is what we would call in counseling an offender and the offended, okay? We're not saying it's total 100% blame, 0% blame, but there's sometimes something that has activated this last little cycle of anger or whatever. And it is heartbreaking as a counselor when you're working with a couple and the offender really does finally break down. Now, there's a lot of times that the offender is so full of themselves, they never break down. They they're consistently think that they're right, okay? That happens quite a bit. But there are those times, there are those times that they actually get soft-hearted, that God kind of breaks through, that they see their sin, and in that contrite and broken heart, they won't remedy with that spouse and the spouse says I'm done never with a broken and contrite heart when God would bring us to a place where we realize our sin and we want to come home does he say I'm done I don't care what you've done folks well Bobby what about this and you can start listing other sins or your sins or whatever there's never a time that we see here this God with a broken and contrite heart that when we finally come to that place of realizing God we have sinned against you we have messed it up that God says sorry close the door as long as you're drawing breath we serve a God who invites you to come and come and return to him He doesn't move on. He doesn't close the door. There's a song out by Matthew West, uh, A God Who Stays. It's a great song. A God who stays. He just stays. He's faithful in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Now look at verse 7. 
From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. In other words, he said, I, I told you what to do. There was commandments and there was laws and there's different things I've given you. And even I've given you those, not to test how good or bad you were in, in one sense, but to, to guide you in life, to give you truly a, a life that was, you know, a good life. But you've left those. Guys, we call that sin. And I know that sin is not a very popular subject to preach anymore, and yet the Bible continually talks about our sin, not so that it can rub our nose in it, but because that we can see our need for a Savior. You're never going to realize your need for a Savior until you come to this place where you admit that you have fallen short of what God intended for your life. That intention is perfection. He created Adam and Eve perfect, but fallibly perfect. Gave them a mind. He gave them the ability to choose, either to follow lovingly and graciously or to rebel. And they rebelled. And ever since that time, all of humanity, Paul says, have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are like God. In all my years of ministering, talking to people that both believed and didn't believe, that's the one thing that I've never had confrontation on. I've had confrontation on a lot of things. Belief about the Bible and this, that, and the other who Jesus really was. But one thing I've never found a single person in my entire 37 years of ministry that said, you know, I believe that I'm perfect. (laughs) They all knew that they were not perfect. And this is what God meant when he, through the Apostle Paul, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so it's put this distance. And so look what happens here. He said, he reminds them, you have not followed my statutes, my commandments, my laws. Now look at this promise, guys. This is the point of the whole morning. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. What an amazing offer to a rebellious people. They have not honored him. They were bringing bad sacrifices. They were accusing God of being unjust. All the accusations they were giving to him is that God was this messed up God. And yet in response... He, he calls them out for their rebellion. But he invites them to return. What an amazing God. I've said several times through this book of Malachi, if I was God, and you better be glad that I'm not. Because there had already been some lightning bolts. I mean, when they shake their fists to heaven, when they look and say, God, you're, you're the one that's changed. You're the one that's unjust. If I'm wholly just God... I mean, even if you just got the lightning bolt close enough for them to feel the the heat of it, that would have been kind of my vindictive nature. But God is not vindictive. He's holy. And he has wrath and judgment against those things that are unholy. But he has this amazing grace and this love for us in the midst of our sin. And he invites us not to stay where we are because that would not be loving. Well, just let me be. You have a family member in sin. You have a family member who's, you know, rebellious and and messing up their life. That's not loving. No, I I get it when they say, just let me be. I'm a grown adult. I can make my own decisions. I get that, okay? But isn't one of the most unloving things that we can do sometimes is to, to, to leave them in the midst of that? 
That doesn't mean that you have to call them up and remind them every day. It doesn't mean that you have to keep record or anything like that. But it means that you are praying for them. You're not just leaving them at their own distance from God because that's a terrible place to be. It's not what God does here. Look what happens. Matthew 3, 7 again. Because if you're looking in your word instead of on the screen, you realize that I, I cut that verse a little bit short because here's the rest of the verse. From the days of your fathers, have you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I re- will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now on the surface in our English language, that kind of looks like them saying, okay, how do we get there? That is not what's going on here. Do your own research. Go look at the the background of this. Because there's a very, very important word here. Do you see what starts that last verse? What word? But. He says, look, I said that you've left and you're convinced that you haven't left. When they say, how should we return? They're not saying, how do we get home? What they're saying is, we have no need to come home because we never left. God, if there's somebody who's changed, who's left here, you changed. This is one of the most arrogant statements in the entire Bible. Return? God, we're we not to return. We haven't done anything wrong. Do, do you see that attitude there? Remember the accusation against God in, in chapter 2, verse 17? That somehow God wasn't just? That somehow God had changed? Because they saw evil prospering and they felt like they were not prospering. Well, they were in sin. And maybe sometimes evil does prosper because the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. But God says, never, never fool yourself to think that somehow I'm not in control, that I'm not sovereign God. Return to me and I will return to you. But God, we don't have to return. We've done nothing wrong. We haven't left. We all have a certain blindness to our own faults and sins. I'm sure there's been times in your life that you've gone to a family member, maybe in pure love, true, true love for them, and you say, you know, man, I see this in your life, and it worries me, and I'm praying for you, and can I help you in any way? You're not coming judgmental. You're not coming accusatory. You're coming going... This isn't, this doesn't look healthy. This doesn't look godly. This doesn't look like something God could bless in your life. And what you get is this cold face response that comes out in one of two ways. I don't have a problem. Or the mirror approach. Who are you to tell me when you've got your own problem? Have you been there before, guys? God comes to these people in grace and in love. He extends an invitation. Return to me and I'll return to you. What an extension of grace to a rebellious people that were doing everything offensively to God. And yet in their arrogance... God, we don't have a need to return because we never left. If anybody left, it was you, God. This is where I would just pull out one of my lightning bolts. And yet God doesn't. 
If you've ever studied the Bible, uh, you know the prophets, the, the major prophets, the minor prophets in the Bible, you've heard of that? They had a lot of different messages for the people of Israel. God's always talking to his people, giving them direction, and he does it oftentimes in the Old Testament through prophets. And if you could sum up all of the words, the prophets, into just kind of what is their, what's their main message? Do you know that it would be this? Return to me. That this was the consistent message of every prophet, the major prophets, the minor prophets, that they would bring a word against the people to call them out in their sin and their rebellion. But there was always that offer from God in every prophet, return to me and I will return to you. Maybe not in those words, but sometimes exactly in those words. Go look at Zechariah, those exact words. Return to me and I'll return to you. What does it mean to return? Maybe, again, if you've grown up in church, if you're a little bit familiar with our Christian lingo, it's the word repent. It's really the same thing. To repent is to change one's mind and change your ways and um, to think differently about it. There's basically three things that we see in biblical repentance. First, to acknowledge that you have sinned, that you have left. Okay, so here you are with God in right relationship, and then we allow sin to come into our life. We make choices, and so we come over here, and, and, and we're involved in our sin. It could be pride. It could be worry. It could be all kinds of different things. But we're, this is us, and we've made this choice, and who left? Who left? We did, okay? Get that. Okay, so, so we've left God, and the first thing that is a sign of biblical repentance, is to acknowledge not that God left, but that we left. Do you get that? That we realize, God, you left us. No, God, I left you. And we went our own way. The second part of biblical repentance is that we turn around 180 degrees and we head home. We get here, we're in this rebellious life. Often we realize that we have left God and we admit and confess that we've left God and we turn 180 degrees. Why? Because a head and a heart has changed. And we come home. We begin to make our way back to God. Not on works, not on our valuable things that we could do, but simply that we, upon the invitation of this God who says, you return to me and I'll return to you. God, he says, man, I left the light on and the door is open. And I'm at the door waiting for you. Number three, that when we get home, we confess our sin. Remember what David said when God, by his grace and mercy, brought the prophet Nathan to David in his sin? He'd been in adultery. And there had been no sign of repentance in David's life for nine months to a year. There's no sign biblically that David felt, you know, this is really getting bad. No, he just gets deeper and deeper in his sin. Not only does he sin against Bathsheba, but then he goes out and basically murders the, the husband. You know, sets him up to be killed. He's getting deeper and deeper into his sin. And so finally, not because he got over here and said, you know, I think I've made some wrong choices. I think I'm going to turn around and come back to God. That's not what happens at all. Way over here, when he's deep in his sin, you know what God does in his mercy and his grace, guys? 
He sends this prophet named Nathan, and he comes and he tells the story to David. He says, David, you're a king. You're really smart. What would you do in this situation? He explains the situation. David says, well, that man deserves this. And it was a very harsh judgment. And David says it with enthusiasm. This man deserves this. And the prophet Nathan turns to King David and says, you're that man. Does anybody remember what David says in that moment? Confront it with his sin. I've sinned against God and against man. And he turns and he confesses his sin and he comes and he begins his way home. Understand that there's times that we get out here in our rebellion, guys, that we've done things in our lives and we've left God and we've allowed a, a pattern of sin to come into our lives. And sometimes it's because we skin our t- knees and, and, and we kind of fracture our bones over here and we're going, man, I need to get back home where I know I really belong. But there's other times that in that rebellious heart, God in his mercy and grace sends a prophet Nathan or a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad or a son or a daughter or a loving friend that says, hey, I noticed this in your life. I'm not trying to judge you, but I care about you. And God uses that person in a miraculous way sometimes to bring us into recognition of our own sin. Here's one truth. If any of y'all have some counseling background, I promise you whether you are coming from a biblical pastoral counseling point of view or not, that you would have agreement. I assume that you would. There cannot be restoration until there's repentance. Now, I realize that those are biblical words. But it's a principle. It's a truth. Until there's an admittance, yeah, you can shake hands, much like your mom made you... Shake hands with your sister or something. Have you ever, have you ever been told to just go shake hands and make up with Emma? Yeah. And your heart was fully in it. And you were broken and crying and you felt, oh man, I love my sister. No, you went over there and you shook her hand and it was probably like this, dude. Kind of like, you know, kind of that pressure, kind of like, yeah, love you. And I'm sure knowing Emma, love you too, brother. Yeah. <laughs> There's not restoration. There's an act. There's words, but in two hearts, that relationship is still broken. Because until there's true repentance, there cannot be restoration. And so what do we do here? We begin to see this story where they go, okay, how have we left you? How do we return? If we never left, how do we return? And so God in his grace and mercy actually tells them something that they've done that's offensive to him. Look at verse 8. Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? What's the next verse? The next sentence, what's the first word? But. We get a lot of buts here. (laughs) Because this is a common way that we kind of, when we find accusation against us because of pride, because of our our lack of just wanting to own up. How many times do we start our defense with the word, but? Well, God, you just don't know. God, you haven't had to live with this man or this woman or this job or that boss or that mother-in-law. He says, but 
you say, how have we robbed you? It's actually very gracious of God to actually explain in your tithes and your offerings. How have you left? I'll give you an example of how you left. You've been bringing really bad sacrifices and you're not giving your tithes and offerings. Folks, this is not a passage about money. This is a passage about a heart that has left God and His grace that says, if you come back, I've got the door open for you. Please forgive us as pastors when we made this a, a tithing sermon. It's not a tithing sermon. It talks a little bit about it. But God's concern wasn't, well, you know, offering was down last week. You better get out the old Malachi 3.10 verse. May God forgive us. Every pastor who has preached this as a tithing sermon, when it really was about the eternal souls of mankind, that we would put the monthly offering above somebody's eternal existence? Now, it does address some principles here. Just like a couple, you know, sermons ago, he talked about divorce, but that was not the expose on divorce. This isn't what God just says all these things about divorce. It was simply the example of how they had left the wives of their youth and, and they had married these daughters that worshiped idol gods. And so here he begins to talk about, you've, you've robbed me. How have we robbed you? And your tithes and your contributions. A tithe is a tenth. And this precious, pretty, precious, precious young ladies one time came to know Christ. She did not have a church background. And she came up to me and she said, Pastor, I have a couple questions about tithing. So about, about what? About tithing. Uh, you mean tithing? I, yeah, I guess so. I have never heard the word. And maybe you're here this morning. You don't know the difference between tithing, tithing, or anything else. Okay. Basically, in the Old Testament, God was showing us through our giving where we placed the things of our lives. And it comes down, let me make it really, really simple. You're going to go through this life with one of two attitudes about the things that you have that you are the owner or that you are a steward, a manager. The Bible makes it very, very clear that God owns everything and that we are called to steward that, to manage that. And, And here it gives us an example, a litmus test. Okay, do you see yourself as the owner or do you see yourself as a steward? Anybody ever work in a job where you're actually responsible for paying uh, the bills, uh, maybe a, even an accountant or something like that with, within a company? I know Sabrina has done that before others. And you actually, you know, you're writing checks. What would have happened? Who, who do you work for, Sabrina? That's what I thought. Zaxby's a pretty big company. I imagine they have a few dollars. What if in your job... You didn't see yourself as a steward and a manager and a facilitator, but the owner of all that money. And so you decided at Christmas time, 
to bless your family really well. And there's been an RV that Greg's been looking at. You know, he's been just waiting for. And you said, well, I've got the ability. I can sign this check. And so I'll just sign this check over, and, and I'll just pay for this RV. What do they call that? Do they call that borrowing? Or do they call that embezzlement? Why do they call it embezzlement or stealing? Because it's not your money. You're simply a steward, a manager, responsible to make sure that everything is done efficiently. Well, Bobby, that's not the same. No, it's exactly the same, guys. No, Bobby, it really isn't the same because I went up there and I went to college and I stayed up those nights and I, and I worked hard and I get up at five in the morning and then sometimes I don't finish till nine at night. By the grace of God, we get to do this, guys. By the grace of God, we made some A's and B's on those classes and they gave us this little certificate. And we took that certificate and so I said, well, I'll pay you this much to go do this job. By the grace of God, we get to do this. Do you see the heart problem here? Are you the owner or are you the steward? You have the owner's attitude And you come to church and you give a, a tithe, a tithe, a tenth, or something less or something more. With an owner's attitude, folks, at best, that's tipping. And last time I went to a restaurant, I actually tipped the person that was helping me a lot more than I would be tipping God. But when you have a steward's attitude, when you really understand, God, by your grace, I'm just managing what you have allowed me to to do. That this is God, and God, will you help me to remind myself of that? And our giving is a reminder. Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? See, it's not about a matter of numbers. I've had young couples come up over the years. Bobby, we, we read and some, we asked somebody about how much should we should be giving and they, they said this tenth and we're not used to giving and, and honestly we can't afford that. Here's what I've told them with a sincere heart. Pick a number. Pick a number. Now I know that there would be some pastors that would disagree with that. It's a heart matter. It's not a number matter. He owns it all anyway, guys. He's not after your checkbook. He's after your heart. And so they pick a number. There's a number that they picked. I don't know what it was. But I can't tell you. There's at least two times I can vividly remember in my mind this very day where they came back and said, hey, we picked a number. We started giving 3%. And, and you know, you just said to do it methodically and to do it first fruits and just to do it with a grateful heart. And Bible, we just want you to know, you didn't ask us to report back, but we just want you to know, man, we're giving over 10% now. Because we found out this one thing, we can't outgive God. Please do not hear this as a pastor. Our church finances, our elder in charge of that, both of them are back in the back, but they would tell you, we're doing fine at Cornerstone. 
Don't hear this as a financial issue. Don't hear this as pastors up there talking about money again. No, pastors talking about a gracious God that when we have a rebellious heart and we've left him and we're over here, that he graciously says, if you repent and return to me, I will return to you. And he just happens to give an example of one of the things that they had taken ownership of and they were not doing the role that they were called to do and that is to be stewards of it. Leviticus 27:32. Listen what it says. And every tithe of the herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all. Because remember, they didn't carry a wallet back in those days. Their value was the agricultural society. They had crops, they had animals. Every, every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be called holy to the Lord. Tithing is not your dues to be part of the Christian club. It's a grateful acknowledgement that God has blessed you with the ability to go out there and provide for your family. And in the provision of your family, especially in these Old Testament times, he had set up the tribe of Levites to be the ministers. And this was a way that he provided for them. And then they had the responsibility of making sure that they took care of the orphans and the widows and other people. God set up a system and they were to be stewards over this and each had their part. I'll be so disappointed this morning if you go, well, you preach about money again. Number one, I've never, I've been here for four years and I've never preached about money because it's never come up on the text. Number two, if it comes up next week, I'll preach it again. If it comes up the next week, I'll preach it again. I'm just going to preach to you the word of God, okay? But let's be honest. The reason why we're sometimes very sensitive about that is because it is that litmus test. Sometimes it is kind of showing that we're dealing, acting more like an owner than a steward. But even if we are, even if we, even if this was our sin, what's the promise of God? What's the invitation of God here? We've all got sin, but let's say that this was one of our places of that we just had really hard time. Because I just don't trust those churches. I don't really like the preacher either. That's fine. That's fine. This isn't about churches and it's not about preachers. It's about realizing and, and respecting that we're stewards. But here's the thing. Even if we are just stubborn against that, repent. Return to me. I'll return to you. What a gracious, gracious God. Look what he says in verse 10. Sure, I realize I'm skipping ahead there a little bit. Took a poll and nobody wanted to stay to 2 o'clock. I don't know why. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and therefore put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, but pastor, that's Old Testament. And I'm a New Testament Christian. I don't live under that Old Covenant. I live under the New Covenant. Well, then let's see what he said through the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 and 8. Each one must give as he's decided where? In his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not because they heard a sermon on giving. For God loves a cheerful giver. 
Now look at verse 8, guys. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Does that mean you're going to get rich? Are we preaching in prosperity uh, gospel here? You give $100, God's going to give you $1,000? No, we're not preaching this. Here's what God has promised in that verse. You live your life as a steward, you're going to find contentment. One of the most valuable things in this life, in this earth right now, in a world of discontent, is to find contentment. Contentment with a holy God. Contentment even as we would go about our lives in something as, as really frictional as finances. This is not a financial issue. It's a heart issue. This is not a tithing passage. This is a repentance passage. Return to me and I'll return to you. Let me close with this. In the New Testament, we see a, Jesus tell a parable about a father who had two sons and, and one son leaves. We call him the prodigal son. Because here's the home and, and he leaves and he goes off just as we've been talking about. He went off and, and the Bible, I'll never forget this. When I was growing up, I was in the King James Church and uh, it's a good church, great church. That he wasted it away with riotous living. I'll never forget that. Because as an 11, 12 year old, you're on him, what in the world was riotous living? It was actually kind of enticing. <laughs> you know, you wanted to know more. <laughs> And so the, the Bible says that he went off and he did his own thing. He acted very much as his own man. And then he finds himself in great despair. Hard times come in that country and jobs are scarce. And this Jewish boy, and everybody that heard the story of Jesus telling would have understood this. This Jewish boy, the only job that he can get is feeding the swine, the pigs. And if you know anything about Jewish heritage and things that are clean and unclean, Pigs are not clean. Jewish people didn't sit down after church on Saturday night and eat barbecue. Okay, they did not. Okay, that was forbid. And, and so it was the worst of the worst jobs that he could have. And, and even then it says that he's out there and he's feeding these pigs the slop that pigs eat. And he longed for the slop. And then one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible, Luke fifteen seventeen. I love how it says in the NIV, and he came to his senses. In the ESV it says, and when he came to himself. In other words, when he got in his right mind, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. What did we say was the first step of, of repentance? Acknowledge your sin. Luke fifteen seventeen, and he came to his senses. He realized that he had erred. It wasn't daddy's fault. Well, daddy didn't give me enough money. Wasn't somebody else's fault? Well, you know, I shouldn't have been taken by all those riotous women that I was hanging out with. How many of my father's servants have more than, than enough to eat? And then it turned into action, verse 15. Uh, verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. You recognize your sin. And what was the second step of repentance? 
you, you turn 180, you get the right mind and the right heart, and it turns you around. You don't just do the action, but it's a contrite heart. It's a broken heart. It's a soft heart. It's a, a, a brain that now says, you know, I was wrong, and not only was I wrong, but God was right. And so it causes this action. We turn 180 degrees, and then we actually head home. We actually come home. But believe me, one thing that I want you to understand about the story of the prodigal son, that I want you to understand about Malachi 3, that son, would he have ever turned to go home if he thought the character of his father was, you, you leave me, you're dead to me. It was the character of the father that even gives him the right mind to say, I will head home. And he goes home just to be a servant. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. When we get home, we confess our sin. Verse 20 through 24, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, we have another but in here. And this time it's God's but. Okay, That didn't sound right. (laughs) But it's a but that comes from God's mouth. And he's saying, you don't deserve this, but here's how I will act in your stead. But the father said to the servants, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You will never, ever find a more gracious invitation than that. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, I pray, I pray, Father, today that we would not hear this as a tithing, a giving sermon. Father, it's simply the example that you pointed out of one of the things that they had a hard heart and that they had really left your word on. Father, we don't diminish that we are to be people that... that are stewards and not owners. And Father, that there is some, there, there are some principles here that we can follow. But Father, thank you that the message of this passage is not about how we have to follow the rules, but about how you are a God. Then when we break the rules, you offer us an opportunity to come home. Father, I, I don't know the minds and the hearts of the people here this morning. I barely know mine. But yet, Father, if if there has been one, that, that, Father, that that the liar himself, Satan himself, Father, the deceiver, the accuser of the brethren himself has whispered in their ear, even this week, you can't go home because God does not want you after that. Father, will you with your loud voice and with your sweet spirit whisper into that ear, into that heart this morning, Father, return to me and I'll return to you. For this is the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Father, help us to understand the principles of stewardship and that we're not owners. 
Help us to understand all the text here. But Father, help us not to miss the beauty of your invitation. That we who have strayed away, you stand at the door, Father, and you invite us to come back. We love you and we thank you. You are our only hope. So, Father, help us today. As as we sing this song about just surrendering you, trusting you, Father, help us to sing it, Father, with a, a full heart and a mind that truly isn't just singing words, but, Father, it's the confession of our heart and our breath as we sing this love song and this song of commitment back to you because you first committed to us. We love you and thank you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.